Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Support for the California Report comes from the Wesley Foundation, improving the lives of California's children and youth at risk. The San Francisco Foundation, working with its many partners to advance greater racial and economic equity for everyone in the Bay Area. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose family foundation advances the wiser use of energy and natural resources on a planet where everything is connected, on the web at theschmidt.org. On today's California Report magazine, we go backstage in Los Angeles, where the king of opera has wowed audiences for 50 years. Most people of his age, they physically cannot do it. I mean, he's like a pitcher who's still pitching at the age of 50. So it seems clear that, you know, he'll go for as long as he wants to go. And we check out the little gold rush town of Volcano. People ask me a lot of times, John, how come you never go anywhere? I said, well, I don't want to go anywhere. I'm already here. Plus a love letter to a Berkeley typewriter shop. We've got your weekly road trip for the ears to meet the people and visit the places that make the Golden State unique. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. That's legendary Spanish tenor Placido Domingo in a 1968 recording of Una Furtiva Lagrima from the classic Italian opera The Elixir of Love. Domingo made his Los Angeles debut 50 years ago this week. Back then, the buzz around the young opera star was just building. Soon he'd be in demand at opera houses across the globe. But over the years, he returned to Southern California again and again. And as our L.A. Bureau Chief Stephen Cuevas explains, Domingo is not just a performer, but a powerhouse, an advocate for the arts who helped build the opera scene in Los Angeles. It's not your typical opera setting. The auditorium is small. The audience didn't have to pay a dime to get in. It was a rare opportunity to see Placido Domingo, teacher, leading a master class at UCLA this past weekend with four young singers, including Eric Levento, a 25-year-old tenor from San Francisco. After performing Donizetti's Una Fortiva Lagrima, 
Domingo tells him to sing it again. This time he gently interrupts throughout to talk character motivation and phrasing. Don't stop the sound. What you are doing is straight the sound. He corrects breathing and posture. He sings along. Domingo joined UCLA as an adjunct professor 25 years ago. The masterclass performance was part of a day-long event celebrating his dedication to music education and the arts in Los Angeles. That included awarding him the university's highest honor, the UCLA Medal. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. It's a, a great honor, really. When I first came to Los Angeles 50 years ago, I never could have imagined that this city will someday become a second home. The world was just beginning to open up for me. Domingo first set foot on an L.A. stage in 1967, playing the king, Don Rodrigo, in the jagged modern opera of the same name. It was my first visit to Los Angeles, and when you are 26 years, then you are coming to Hollywood, it was very exciting. After the medal ceremony, the master class, and an evening reception, Domingo finally settles into a backstage green room, still sporting the UCLA medal over his shirt and tie. Then I was involved in a really forming L.A. opera. I get the idea uh, that I should move the people to have an opera company. And we did. And here we are. <laughs> Before Domingo, opera in L.A. battled for a space in the spotlight. Performances tended to be upstaged by the more established L.A. Philharmonic. There was an over-reliance on visiting opera companies. But L.A. Opera CEO Christopher Kelsch says Domingo tapped into a hunger and a group of local and loyal benefactors who've helped grow and sustain L.A. opera for over 30 years. I don't think it's going too far to say that opera simply wouldn't exist in Los Angeles without his leadership. I mean, I think in the end, he's an evangelist for the art form, and I think he saw an incredible opportunity here, a growing density of culture. About 15 years ago, Domingo became the general director of L.A. Opera. The company dialed back on main stage productions during the global economic crisis, but under Domingo's leadership, the company also launched a program to showcase new, more experimental works at smaller venues, including this year's operatic interpretation of the Ingmar Bergman film Persona. There are still things that he wants to accomplish, and I, I mean, I have so much respect for that idea of a quest, and that's an incredible energy to organize an opera house around. This weekend, Domingo wraps up a month-long engagement at L.A. Opera, playing the aging king who descends into madness at the heart of Giuseppe Verdi's Nabucco. It's an intensely physical role. It has the 76-year-old tenor falling to his knees, getting yanked around by henchmen, and delivering one aria while sprawled across the stage on his belly. One is tempted to say that this guy has a bargain with some really important supernatural beings. Peter Cazares is the director of Opera UCLA. Because most people of his age, they physically cannot do it. I mean, he's like a pitcher who's still pitching at the age of 50. So it seems clear that, you know, he'll go for as long as he wants to go. Despite some recent health setbacks, Domingo continues to perform and conduct around the world. 
though the singing performances are getting further and further apart. Will we see you perform next year in Los Angeles? Surely, if I'm in good voice and if I'm in good health, the planet is still here. Yes, I will. <laughs> we hope so. Thank you, Mike. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Placido Domingo closes out the LA opera season this weekend with a 50th anniversary concert and one final performance of Verdi's Nabucco. For the California Reports, I'm Stephen Cuevas in Los Angeles. People go to libraries to learn something new, to escape to a different world. But what if a trip to the library let you spend time with someone you would never otherwise hang out with? Well, that's what happened recently at a community college in the Central Valley. KVPR's Carrie Klein takes us to a human library. Browse the shelves at a more typical library, and you'll find titles like Goodnight Moon, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, and The Grapes of Wrath. At a human library, though, these are the books. My name is Danny Kim. I'm a genocide survivor. My name is Brianna Soya, and I'm black. My name is Berta Reyes, and I am immigrant. Last month, about 25 of these so-called books gathered at Reedley College, a community college near Fresno, to take part in the school's first human library. So I have a handout for you. Do you They're know? called books because they each have their own story to tell, with titles like Catholic child of deaf adults or autistic. Under a tent on the college quad, they sit along one side of a long banquet table and wait for so-called readers to strike up conversation. There's like lines everywhere. Readers like Michael Sacedo, a Reedley sophomore studying communications. Let's go down here real quick. He approaches the visually impaired book and wastes hardly any time on small talk. Do people ever make assumptions about you based on, like, your appearance and your... In other circumstances, that may be an impolite question. But the book, a student named Jeffrey Seitz, is ready. He explains he's had to develop a sense of humor about his near blindness. My last name is Seitz, for crying out loud, so let's just be honest right there. The human library concept was introduced almost 20 years ago by activists protesting violence and promoting diversity in Denmark. So any of the seats that are open... Since then, it's grown to a global movement, with events held in dozens of countries and cities all across the U.S., including Santa Monica and San Diego. Awesome. Good. That's what inspired Rebecca Al-Hader. She teaches ESL at Reedley and advises the college's multicultural club. She encounters lots of students who struggle with discrimination and cultural misunderstandings. And so I thought if only people knew my students the way that I know them and their personal stories. The event is packed. Al Hader estimates at least 200 readers have passed through. Crowds gather around the Sikh and Muslim books, and many books meet up with friends to excitedly share notes. Although Al Hader may hope for big cultural transformations, she sets readers up with some more manageable goals. We have handed out these papers that have just one question. What's the most important point you learned from this event? And if they learn one new point, then we're happy, and we see that as success. But how did the human books feel about this? Did their labels leave them feeling misunderstood or reduced? The consensus is no. Jack DiGiacomo, the autism book, says directly addressing his diagnosis was refreshing. I love having autism. I wouldn't be the person I am without autism. I love 
talking and sharing people more about autism. Darlene Murray, a Readly professor and the Teen Mom book, said for her, that label was just a path into a bigger conversation. Biracial, female, former teen mom, first-generation college student, whether it's one identifier over the another, it's my story, and I think that we can learn a lot. Sammy Ashworth is a detective with the Fresno Police Department and one of today's books. He says one reader who approached him is an ex-con. And they actually told me when I was growing up, before I went to prison, I hated law enforcement. I would just as soon kill you as be sitting here with you. And now we're sitting here together openly talking to each other, and we have a good dialogue, a good bridge built between us. And so it was an amazing conversation. That conversation was intense, but some others seemed totally normal, just two people talking. And that's the point of the human library, that when we share our stories, we see the humanity in each other. For the California Report, I'm Carrie Klein in Reedley. Every week, the California Report magazine takes you on a road trip for the ears. Getting directions to forks of salmon. We visit the places and meet the people who make the Golden State unique. From a homeless college student in Oakland. So I don't feel like just because I'm homeless that I have to look the part to a cattle ranching mom in the Sierra foothills. So I fix fence, we pull calves, I do everything. We're the Half Hour Weekend Magazine, the in-depth storytelling show from the California Report, and we're launching our own podcast. Subscribe to the California Report Magazine on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Now it's time for another in our series, Family Biz, exploring the stories behind small, family-owned California businesses. This one's about a family trying to map out their future after the recent wildfires in Mendocino County. Four generations of the Fry family live and work at their winery. It was the first organic and biodynamic winery to open in the U.S. The October wildfires destroyed almost all the houses and buildings. Reporter April Domboski takes us to the vineyard where the family's trying to figure out what it will take to save their business. Molly McCullough and her son Osiris Fry scour the ruins of the family vineyard. They think their black cat might have made it. The fire rushed over the hill so fast, McCullough says they had about five minutes to pile into the back of their aunt's pickup truck and get out. When we woke up, I thought we were going to die. Her son Osiris was named for the Egyptian god of the afterlife. At 10 years old, he can handle the responsibility. He was the one who saw the wall of flames and told his parents they should evacuate right away. The fire was like a lion growing 10 feet away from me. It was very, very loud. 64 people were sleeping at the vineyard that night, including family and employees. Everyone got out safely, from the 93-year-old matriarch, Biba Fry, to her 2-year-old great-granddaughter. But all but two of the homes were destroyed, the winery offices, the bottling line, are now rubble. This is where the tasting room was. Still standing are more than 100 stainless steel tanks. And they can hold nearly a million gallons of wine. You can see that most of the tanks are okay, but some of them, the jackets on the tanks, got charred pretty good. But the wine inside is okay. The vineyard's executive director, Katrina Fry, says the fire rushed through so fast, 
it didn't have time to damage the wine. And, you know, you think of how long it takes to boil a big pot of water on your stove. Obviously, there's a huge amount of thermal mass in one of those tanks, so they were not overheated. Normally, they'd be bottling wine three days a week, but that stopped when the fire burned the bottling operation. They're going to hire a mobile bottling plant. And we would have done that by now, except all the labels burned up as well. So we had to reorder a year's worth of labels and capsules and corks. As for the grapes on the vines, about half had already been harvested before the fire. But they're worried that some of what's left might be smoke-flavored. Everyone is segregating the crops as they come in so that if there is evidence of smoke taint, we cannot use those tanks. The wines will have to be tested at a lab. Smoke damage occurs on the molecular level, so if you sniff or taste the grapes at this stage, you can't always tell if they're tainted. For now, the harvest must go on. People are back at work, crushing grapes, salvaging what they can. And the air smells like young wine. It keeps everybody busy and kind of just keep our mind off of the depths. That's tractor driver and carpenter Tom Brower. People call him Tombo. He lost everything he owns in the fire. Everybody is sort of holding holding it in, and, uh, you know, little by little you let it out and you cry with your friends. Everywhere Brower goes, he sees something that's gone. He'd just built a new redwood deck around the tasting room in September, just in time for tourist season. So there, it was kind of a push to get the the deck done. And, and it was nice. I was proud of it. <laughs> He'd just rebuilt a footbridge over the creek after heavy rains wiped out the original. And then the fire destroyed it again. So I'm like, geez, do I have to do it a third time? I probably will. <laughs> for Molly McCullough, it's the barn. Her job on the farm for the last decade was raising the goats. The barn where they were sleeping collapsed in the fire. The first goat was born the day after I gave birth on the land to my son, who's 10. Yeah, they all had names. Some had middle and last names. It's strange, but she says she feels blessed knowing the goats are gone, knowing her home is gone. Getting closure around those losses has allowed her to start thinking about the future. But first, she wants to find out what happened to her little black cat. For the California Report, I'm April Domboski in Redwood Valley. orchestra of typewriters, part of the soundtrack of the new documentary film, California Typewriter, named for a repair shop in Berkeley. The film is an ode to analog, and it features some big fans of the machine, like Tom Hanks. There is a wonderful way to spend time typing. You get to think about it. You get to romantically sit back and ponder what your next words are going to be, and that is a pleasant tactile action. Doug Nickel is the Bay Area-based director of the film, and he joins us now. Hey there, Doug. What drew you to this whole idea of making a film about a dying technology? 
One day I bought an Underwood typewriter on eBay for like six bucks. I just wanted to have this typewriter in my office as like a object of art. It sat there for a while, and it would call me over to it almost to want to push the keys. And I felt it was like speaking to me that it wanted to be fixed up. And um, I looked up, and I found I could only find one typewriter shop left in the Bay Area, and I found this one over in Berkeley. Walked in, met the family, and they were really struggling trying to keep typewriters going. And I just thought this could be a nice little short film, something I could put on YouTube to help them out. And then a friend got a Tom Hanks, and he saw it, and he said, oh, I, I love this. I, I'll be in it. And then it just kind of grew organically from there. One of the heroes in the film is Ken Alexander, who's one of the typewriter repair guys at the shop. And I just love those scenes where he's pulling this wagon and actually taking these old typewriters to a car wash, you know, to hose them down and, and then take them in and fix them. Yeah, no, I feel something for these machines. I'll look at them and, and my mind just goes, where where's this machine been at? If we could talk. Man, could it tell some stories. You never know where these typewriters come from. You know, they come from all over the world. You know, one could have been in, you know, some famous person's library somewhere halfway across the world, and now it made it to this shop over here in Berkeley. Ken's amazing. He's a super kind person, and he loves repairing typewriters. That's what he does. Ken's job was really the first casualty of the digital revolution in a certain way. Um, you know, his job, they, we didn't need typewriters anymore once computers came around, so you didn't need a typewriter repairman. But he's been working, you know, for the last 30 years trying to keep, keep it going for the few people who love typewriters. And you found this whole community of people who are obsessed with typewriters, actors, musicians, writers like David McCullough. People tell me that I could do, do much better, I could go faster and have less to contend with if I were to use a computer, a word processor. But I don't want to go faster. If anything, I would prefer to go slower. To me, it's understandable. I press the key, and another key comes up and prints a letter on a piece of paper. And then you can pull it out. It's a piece of paper upon which you have printed something. You've made that. It's tangible. You know, that same typewriter that he has, he's written every one of his books on it. And he believes it's a tool because you have to think, when you write on a typewriter, you have to think about what you're going to write before you commit it to paper. What do you think is appealing about having a tangible typed piece of paper? I mean, in your film, the singer John Mayer talks about hard drives. Most of us never even look at the stuff that we back up there anyway. It's true. Everything we're creating now, our photos, uh, the things we write, they go into the cloud. And, and what will happen once we die? I mean, will anyone be able to access those things? And, and even if you did want to go back to some, something you wrote and you're looking for it on some hard drive, it, you know, does it actually exist? I mean, John Mayer says they're like high-concept trash cans. And you've also got people who are really avid collectors of typewriters, including Tom Hanks, who has, I think, like 250. Yeah, he had, when we filmed him, he had 270 typewriters. He's pared that down. Uh, myself as well, I started the film with one typewriter, and by the end, I had 85 typewriters. I got the obsession as well. To me, some of the most beautiful scenes in the film are when we get to watch this Oakland artist, Jeremy Mayer, who actually tears apart typewriters. He's kind of an anti-hero. I mean, he makes these sculptures out of typewriter parts. This is how I choose to appreciate the typewriter, by dissecting it and bringing out the little bits and pieces that are us in them. So my favorite stuff to do is the human figures, because I find every curve on the human body in here somewhere, in one of these typewriters. 
he loves typewriters, but he loves what's in them. He he sees the typewriter as almost like a an erector set where he can take them all apart, the pieces, and put them back together. One of his sculptures is in Mark Zuckerberg's office, and he's really uh, his career has really taken off. I mean, really, the film is is three parts: one about the past, one about the present the typewriter shop, and one about you know where we're going in terms of creativity and and our relationship with machines. Do you see an irony that some of these tech moguls love his work made out of analog typewriter parts? Yeah, I think, you know, because I think they understand, you know, the the role the typewriter played and, you know, where it now lies in the kind of a sediment of, you know, as technology moves on. I think they appreciate that tactile uh, quality that's obviously disappearing as we just touch glass now and, and are removed from the more tangible things. For me as a radio person, one of the things that really appealed to me about your film is the sound. And Tom Hanks actually talks about that. He's kind of a typewriter nerd. He loves the sound of typewriters. Listen to this one. See, hear that heavy chunk that you hear right there? Smith Corona now. A little muted, a little softer. And now hear the Olympia. Crisp, a little solid report that, that comes out that to me is a good, solid, good, solid work of art. They're like snowflakes in a certain way. Every typewriter is really unique from their sound to the letters that they make. Every font is, is slightly different. They're they're totally original. You think typewriters are going to make a comeback, kind of like vinyl? Well, they are. It's it's funny that at the shop, the new customers are all kids. So they're bringing in their parents and they're telling their parents they want a typewriter. You know, they've grown up touching glass, touching iPhones and iPads. And they, I think they find it very interesting to actually see how they push a letter and it forms a letter on the, on the page. Doug Nickel, thank you for joining us. Thanks. Doug Nickel is the director of the documentary film California Typewriter. It's in theaters now and comes out on iTunes next week. Search. Search. A place called... What? 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 Como? What? Getting directions to Volcano. And now it's time for our series, A Place Called What? About California Towns with Bizarre and Surprising Names. This week, we're headed to Volcano, a tiny gold rush town in Amador County in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada. That's where we meet John Hemstreet. He lived in Sacramento for 60 years before making the move to Volcano. I knew right away, I could feel it, that this was a place to be for me. It was a beautiful opportunity for me, and I, I took it. I've been rolling with it ever since. I thought it was kind of an unusual name because the only thing I could associate it to was a hole in the ground. But this place was originally called Soldier's Gulch, and later on they changed it because of the lava rock here. And uh, if you're far enough away from here, it does look like a volcano. From what I understand, there were soldiers up here looking for wood, and one of the soldiers stuck his coffee pot in a creek and noticed it was gold in the creek. And when the word got out, lots and lots of people came from all over the world to this place to mine for gold. There was probably five, 6,000 people here at that time. Now there's less than 100. And there are still people living in this town that were related to those miners that came in 1840s. There's uh, actually uh, two hotels in this town, two theaters, one country store, and a bakery, and the Whiskey Flat Saloon. People ask me a lot of time, John, how come you never go anywhere? 
I said, well, I don't want to go anywhere. I'm already here. Carly Severn and Bianca Taylor produced that interview with John Hemstreet of Volcano. Head to CaliforniaReport.org to check out photos of the town. And while you're there, send us a comment with your idea for another California place with an unusual name you'd like to hear about. Or send us an email at CalReport at KQED.org. We've been getting some great suggestions, so keep them coming. And that's the California Report magazine, a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. You can listen to us wherever you are if you subscribe to our new podcast. Look for the California Report magazine on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, write us a review and spread the word. Our director is Susie Racho. Our technical producer is Seal Muller with additional engineering from Katie McMurrin and Howard Gelman. Victoria Maulione is our senior editor. Our team also includes David Marks, Miranda Leitzinger, Bianca Taylor, Julia McAvoy, Ingrid Becker, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state. Your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose family foundation advances the wiser use of energy and natural resources on a planet where everything is connected, on the web at theschmidt.org. The Barracuda Networks, network application, content, and data security solutions for physical networks and public cloud platforms. Learn more at barracuda.com products. And the James Irvine Foundation. Expanding economic and political opportunity for Californians who are working but struggling with poverty. More at Irvine.org. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.